The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to Utah Symphony Utah Opera's Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. Jeff and I are honored to introduce our Ghost Light audience to Steve Brosvik, brand new president and CEO of Utah Symphony at Utah Opera. Steve has been on the job for approximately 11 days at this point, and we are looking forward to getting to know him today and introducing him to our audience. Steve, welcome to USUO, and more importantly, welcome to Utah. We're glad to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here. We're really excited. Well, we thank you for squeezing us in between your moving truck arrival and your closing and everything else that comes with a big move like this. We really do appreciate it. We want to start, though, in our conversation with you right at the beginning. Tell us about your earliest classical music experiences, either as a performer, audience member. How did it all start for you? Well, I think it all started, gosh, when I was maybe, I think, four. And uh, for Christmas, our grandparents got us this little tiny Magnus chord organ. It had you know, probably you know, 38 keys and buttons to play chords. And they actually uh, bought it for my older sisters, and they wouldn't touch it, and I wouldn't leave it. So we went from there to organ lessons and piano lessons, and then I trained as a pianist then all the way through school. Uh, and for or- orchestral and performance, really, I, I'm going to have to narrow it down to two things in third grade had an extraordinary music teacher in elementary school and uh, set up music stations one day for all of us to move kind of every five minutes from one to the other. And one of the stations was a record player with uh, Walter Carlos's Switched on Bach album playing Bach on the Moog synthesizer and I wouldn't leave the station. And that that was a, a good tip for me that classical music was gonna be where I needed to live. And then later that season, uh, that school year, we had a field trip to Orchestra Hall and we got to hear the Minnesota Orchestra live. And that became my hometown orchestra and uh, it changed everything for me. That's a pretty good first orchestra experience. It's a pretty Minnesota good first orchestra, orchestra experience, yeah. absolutely. And then I did degree work um, for my internship in college with St. Paul Chamber Orchestra. So I got to experience both sides of the river. So you're Minnesota born and bred. And I love that you had an early field trip experience because I had a similar field trip in fifth grade where I saw my first opera in Houston. Again, not a bad place to start your opera world in. That's when that bug started to nibble away. Uh, What does your path as an administrator look like then? You said you did uh, undergraduate in keyboard, but at some point you transitioned to arts administration. Yeah, I I actually started college uh, with a straight business degree. Uh, I listened to my parents who told me the world had lots of good pianists and I needed to make sure that I could feed myself when I grew up. So I started the business degree. Uh, shortly into that, though, about a year in, I decided that I was really bored and I needed more. So I started over with the straight, full-on music degree, doing theory, air training, history, everything. And then eventually I was able to merge the two and I finished up with a music business degree. Uh, from there, I did a management internship for a year through the American Symphony Orchestra League, which is now the League of American Orchestras, uh, and then started working with orchestras, and it's it's been doing that for a couple of decades. I've had a very different school path, but you and I have done a lot of similar kinds of work over the last couple of decades, and I can tell you, Steve, when I got here to USUO 16 years ago, I came from a purely symphonic background, and I was then and now not so secretly obsessed with opera. So (laughs) the opportunity to work really close with an opera company and meet people like Carol and Christopher Macbeth was one of the big reasons I moved all the way out here from Florida. I will say that the other reason was 
Florida itself, but that's another <laughs> podcast altogether. We've just lost we'll our Florida that's audience. Right. Yeah, we way. probably did, but they know what I'm talking about. But I can only assume that there was some of that in this for you too, that the fact that the Utah Symphony has a sister company and the Utah Opera must have been a big thing for you and a big reason why you did this move yourself. So what's your background with opera and what excites you most about being able to collaborate with an opera company now? It's absolutely one of the appeals for me. Early on in uh, the in fact, the League Management Fellowship, one of the thoughts that I had was, well, you know, if, if an orchestra position doesn't happen to be available when I get out of the fellowship program, I wouldn't mind working with an opera company. I've never had the opportunity until now, and it was absolutely part of the appeal. In college, as part of my performance training, um, I certainly you know, sang in, in the choir program for a number of years and throughout uh, earlier school, but I also played the role of Dr. Bartolo in Mozart's Marriage of Figaro in college. Um, I don't want to go back and, and relive that recording because I, <laughs> I don't want to hear it from the other side, but uh, I really enjoyed it. And also from a professional perspective, um, especially working in Houston, uh, we started to do semi-staged operas uh, in, in live performance on the stage with the orchestra. Uh, we did Lura Espanol. Uh, we were working on Fidelio when I left, uh, had also done um, Adoption from the Seraglio, and my favorite was Wozzeck. In my last full season there with our, our first music director in Houston that I worked with, uh, it was his final season as music director, and we, we did a, a whole new production of Wozzeck top to bottom. Uh, it was a great experience. to play just a little tiny role in your June trip to Salt Lake. It was a very covert operation before you were announced as our president and CEO. Uh, former resident artist Addison Marlowe and I performed for you as part of a tour of the Capitol Theater. <laughs> While you were there, I mean, that was a lot of fun. We made sure we did a Rigoletto excerpt because we had heard that that perhaps was one of your favorite operas. It's one of my favorites. But what else were you able to do in that tiny little visit to explore the city and the facilities? Well, we had a similar performance opportunity um, at Abravanel. Um, Madeline played meditation from Thais, and it was a great opportunity for me to hear the hall. Um, one of the things that I had said to Tom Love, chairman of the board, was that normally under non-COVID circumstances, and we can talk more about this later, but uh, normally under those, outside of those circumstances, I would never say yes to taking a position like this without hearing the orchestra or the opera company um, live with the music director in the home hall just to s get a reference point and understand okay where are we and you know from the time that i heard the orchestra in the late 90s what does the orchestra sound like now and what what progress has made what changes it, all of that and that just wasn't going to be possible so that those two performance opportunities were able to be put together so thank you uh and it just it just gave me a great acoustic reference point for the concert halls and to you know just hear some music live for heaven's sake uh it was a great moment um aside from that we got around the city quite a bit uh we did do some driving around town had a great meeting with folks up at deer valley and got to see where the the festival happens and looking forward to next summer when it actually happens <laughs> absolutely and had a great dinner up at log haven and uh really got to experience the the community which was really helpful well, certainly that's uh, absolutely true that candidates for big jobs usually have a chance to do a site visit and really get a sense of the company culture 
and we don't have that opportunity right now for obvious reasons. What sort of leaps of faith did you feel that you and your family had to take as you considered and then accepted this job? The first one was giving up a great position in a city we loved with a great orchestra and a hall we loved and the people, our friends, um, to move during a pandemic. Who does that? I don't know. but. We wanted to take that leap of faith because we got up here and all of our interactions with everybody uh, on a personal level, on a Zoom level, seemed really incredible. Um, there's a great group of people involved with this institution and who all want to see it succeed. And that made it much less of a leap of faith and more a leap of um, trust. Yeah, I love the idea of a leap of trust and not to be too much about my experience, but I remember I just spent a weekend in Salt Lake when I was interviewing for the position and it was so obvious when I got on the plane to come back to Florida. <laughs> I, I came here from Florida as well. For Florida. We'll talk I, about that later. I probably am going to have to do an entire apology podcast in the state of Florida, but I did grow up there, so I do have some rights and privileges in this regard. Absolutely. So. And I did love my time in Florida, but it was so, sorry, Steve, back to Steve and our purpose for being here. Uh, I really did know when I left that this was where I needed to be. I had to wait a few months to find out longer than you, I think, that was going to happen, but it all came I just it's it's a great place. I mean, COVID aside, Steve, it's a challenging time for the arts in general. Mm -hmm. Has been for a number of years. You and I have seen that over our careers. And mm -hmm. I, you know, you're coming to USUO at a time when it's facing a lot of challenges and also opportunities. There's a music director search that's in its early phase. And um, what excites you most about the the things that lay ahead here? What things are you most excited to sort of dig into and get moving in the right direction? Because there's a there's a few things that need your attention. <laughs> well, there, there's always a lot. I mean, we're we are large, expensive, complex groups of artists and people who all love what we do. Um, and one of the biggest challenges is always just kind of working with everybody and finding the best path to collectively get all of us rowing in the same direction to create the best possible art. Uh, but that also involves the community, and I'm really, really eager to dive into meeting as many people as I possibly can in the community, um, both within the performing arts and outside of the performing arts, education and just, just people, organizations, community service organizations, social organizations, to really find out how we can best be serving Salt Lake City and the entire region, the entire state. We have such capacity as performing arts organizations to change people's lives, to change the focus and direction of people's lives, even if that means we're only changing it for two hours and making it better. And we can't do that if we're not serving people and making sure that everybody knows the work that we're doing, understands the music that we're playing, to just to get them in the doors so that they can hear it. Because once we get them in the doors, we know we got them. Um, that that's going to be a big focus of the work and creating partnerships throughout the community that we might not until now have had the chance to do. Coming in at this particular period with COVID, it's, it's, it, it, it could either be a huge leap of faith or maybe it's the best time. I haven't decided yet. Uh, I guess we'll find out, but I think everybody is taking this opportunity to rethink how we function, how we work with our community, how we serve our community. And I think that's gonna open a lot of doors and conversations that might not have been available to us before. I'm 
glad you said partnerships because I think two of the most important relationships that you're going to have in the early days are with the artistic leaders of the company. And I think everyone would agree that with Terry Fisher and Christopher Macbeth, this company is in very, very good, strong hands artistically. Hand. So talk a little bit about your interactions with them and about the kinds of relationships you hope to forge with those two gentlemen. Well, I think the earliest conversations were really kind of briefly, you know, as quickly as we could getting to, to know each other and understand a little bit about personal style and and how best to work with one another. But I think that quickly got very comfortable, at least for me, with both of them. And the conversations since then have really very quickly gone directly to the art. And where are we? What are we going to do over the next couple of months? It's been a big focus, of course. But what are then the possibilities beyond? We, we could end up reprogramming an entire season. And hopefully a lot of what we had planned originally for this season will move into next year uh, so that we can restore it or have a chance to, to maneuver it a little bit based on conditions. But um, all, most of the conversations have been about the art and what are we going to do to make sure that we can get it back on stage as quickly as possible. It's, I've been really heartened by the amount of creativity and intention, thinking about sometimes two or three or four times now about what programs we can create in the next four, six, eight weeks. Um, we, those programs, I know at least Masterworks 1 and 2, uh, have been redone several times just to try to factor in all strings, strings plus winds and brass, how large can the orchestra be, how much audience can we have, and what are the financial ramifications of all of those things. Uh, but then also for the first opera, um, Christopher's had to go through great lengths working with people here and in Europe to try to make a program happen, and it's been really incredible to see it all working. I can relate in my small way at the Grand Teton Music Festival. We just went through an iterative, ever-shrinking process like this over the course of the summer. Sure. It's very micro compared to what you're facing, but I think it's emblematic of what everyone's dealing with right now. Yeah, absolutely. And it it's, was a challenge. It's a worldwide problem. Yeah. You know, what I'm hearing you say and what we a lot of people have said from day one of the pandemic is we're going to have to use this opportunity not to just stop what we're doing, but to re-envision what we're doing. And that's, I think, a really encouraging challenge to have in front of all of us. Anything else you want to share before we close this time? You know, this early on, it, it's, it's hard to say where we're going to go yet. Um, but I think the mission of what we do and performance of music and the educational activities that we have, which are vast, by the way, um, they give us opportunities that so many other people don't have. And I'm going to be focusing a lot of my time on making sure that we can fund what we need to do by making sure everybody knows what we do and finds paths to enjoy what we do so that they want to continue funding what we have to do, uh, which is create great, extraordinary music. And I guess my message to everyone who's listening is to kind of dive in with us and you know, lean into the process, watch what we're doing, come listen to what we're doing, and however you can, help us make sure that that mission goes forward. Um, this is an organization that, and part of the reason why I'm here is that I felt this is an organization collectively from the board, the funding community, the listening community, the staff, the musicians, everyone that I've met is ready to lean in and make it happen. 
but we want everybody's help by coming to listen and paying attention to what we do and um, helping be advocates throughout the community for the work that we're trying to make happen amidst a pandemic. Uh, we want to make live music possible and we want to get back to changing people's lives and making lives better for everyone. So I'll just ask everyone, even in my first days here, to help us do, do that work in any way that you can. Steve, it's encouraging to hear those words, and I can I can tell you as somebody whose role in this company has changed a lot over the years and is now pretty much limited to this time I get to spend with Carol a couple times a month, I'm really happy for her and the other friends I have here that you're with them. I'm really encouraged by what I'm hearing from you, and I'm just glad that you're in charge because I think there are good days ahead. That being said, Carol wanted to let you off the hook on our traditional final question on the Ghost Light Podcast. <laughs> oh. I refused to allow it. Um, because of our name, we typically ask everybody if they've ever seen a ghost, if they've got a paranormal experience from all their times in theaters that they'd like to share. Steve Broswick, you ever seen a ghost? I've never seen a ghost. But I will tell you that... I still think there are unexplained happenings in the conference room on the third floor of the Skirmerhorn Symphony Center in Nashville. Go on. Um, well, it, the, the building is named for Kenneth Skirmerhorn, former music director, who unfortunately was, was alive to see all of the early work and the design work done, but passed away before ground, the groundbreaking. Um, Kenneth is actually buried on site of the hall. Um, his ashes are buried under a sculpture out in the courtyard next to the building. And it's rather odd that everyone goes home and leaves at night. And you know, we might even have had a meeting in the conference room um, at the end of the day. And maybe it's even a Friday. And then I would come back in on Monday morning and pop into that conference room to make sure everything was set for the next meeting coming in that we were about to start. And oddly, art in the room was in slightly different places. And the TV on the wall would be on. But no one had been around for the weekend. He's still going to meetings, the maestro. I think he is. I wonder what he would think of Zoom. <laughs> and we could never keep his photo on the wall straight. Interesting. That's a signature in a way. I love it. That's great. Well, it's been amazing to have you with us. Welcome again, and thank you for being a guest on the Ghost Light Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. It's exciting. Can't wait to keep moving. On behalf of everyone that I work with here at Utah Symphony, Utah Opera, Welcome to the company, and we're thrilled to see where we're going to go in the next seasons. Be sure and visit utahsymphony.org and utahopera.org for information about upcoming performances. If you haven't yet, it would really help us if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us to get new listeners. Until next time, I'm Carol Anderson. And I'm Jeff Counts. Thanks for listening. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. The Utah Symphony Utah Opera season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation.